y'all, I've been on OkCupid. Oh. <laughs> and I got to be honest, OkCupid makes me miss my ex, like, a lot. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. Like, the intersection of leftist over the age of, like, 27 and attractive. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Apparently it's a hard pull. And I don't want to like, if you have liked me on OkCupid, I probably liked you back and I probably think you're cute. But like, I have, I am having just such a dispiriting time on this website, comparing every single one of them to my ex and being like, man, did I fuck up by dumping him? Like, shit, what have I done? Oh, quarantine problems. Yeah, right? Questioning all your previous life choices before the quarantine. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Things that you used to take for granted. Yeah, I like that there would be more men. <laughs> Worst part is when the guys are like, I know you can date me. I know you've got Zoom right now. I did just send a message to one dude who his profile is like really cool, actually. So like maybe that'll work out. That would be cool. I asked him if he's in any orgs, you know. That's the qualifying question. What orgs are you in? I need a list. I need some acronyms, baby. Come on. Listen, listen. It's because he made a lot of claims about being like an organizer and leftist. And I'm like, you better have a list ready or you're fucking lying and I'm not fucking with you. <laughs> like, what am I doing with my life? And I quote, working, studying activism. I could probably beat you at, and I quote, revolutionary politics. Oh, damn. Claims. Pretending to be an activist to try to get, you know, try to get someone in your life is a very common pastime. Like, actually, <laughs> though, I've seen it done before. I've seen a lot of, like, leftist men. No, I know. I'm acknowledging. <laughs> if you're a real activist, you're too tired to have any other hobbies. I mean, listen, that's objectively true. But I still would like to at least have <laughs> the potential that I might get laid again someday before I die. Okay? Anyway, hello everyone. You're listening to Not <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're very excited to be with you once again today. Uh, we have Zainab Mosini here. Zainab, say hi. Hello. Uh, it's very nice to have you on the show. We've been looking forward to recording with you. We had a nice chat with you about a week ago and you just charmed the pants off us. So, you know, we've all been just kind of like eagerly awaiting this moment to get you on the air and introduce you to our lovely audience who are, I'm sure, going to be thoroughly entertained by you as well. Uh, Zainab, please tell the audience just a little about yourself, who you are and uh, what got you running for Congress. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I think you're so kind for saying that I'm charming. But my name is Zainab Mousini. I am a Democratic candidate for Virginia's Congressional District 11. I'm hoping to get the Democratic nomination as a progressive. So I'm running on the values of Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and a livable minimum wage. A lot of my policy platform points are based on the fact that I was a canvasser, uh, for the last two election cycles, working for to get a, uh, progressive Democrats elected at the local and state level and some of my life experiences. So how I got into politics is I, just like millions of people in, in this country, was not politically active at all. 
until 2016. But my story is different than the rest of the people who got active during 2016. So as it says everywhere on my bio, I'm a refugee from Afghanistan. So I was born in Afghanistan. And then my family lived in Pakistan for obvious reasons as uh, illegal immigrants were undocumented in Pakistan, like thousands of Afghans. And a majority of my life and how I came to understand life came from the fact that I lived uh, as a incredibly poor, undocumented person in Pakistan. And this comparison to people who, so I look a little different, so I'm easily spotable. Um, so discrimination was at high, high rates because we uh, look more Asian like and other people don't. So there was a lot of discrimination against people of my ethnicity, which is Hazara, we're a minority group in Afghanistan. Um, so we lived in Pakistan and then my family was placed in Beaverton, Oregon in 2003 through the United Nations High Commissions for Refugees. So when we moved there, none of us spoke English. It was my mom and my four siblings and I, and we started our life in the U.S. We moved here April 14, 2003, and uh, we had to do vaccinations and go through the paperwork and stuff like that. And then I was placed in middle school for like a week or two. And then I had not seen many white people in my life. And I couldn't tell the difference between two teachers. So a student was assigned to me to take me between two classes of these two blonde women who looked very similar. Um, I love this story. To be <laughs> yeah, I am also I'm, unmuted at exactly the same moment. I, I, I assume to say the same thing. I was just like about to just kind of <laughs> I was laughing so hard with my microphone muted. I just wanted to say something about that because it was making me laugh. Oregon, infamous for having no discrimination ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, no history of discrimination at all. You wouldn't be able to find it. But yeah, uh, please, uh, I think that sarcasm sometimes doesn't come across (laughs) very well. So I just want to let people know that I was being sarcastic. Um, But yeah, so we didn't speak any English. I think that my English was like very basic, like A for Apple, B for babies uh, and things like that. Um, so adjustment took me a really long time to adjust. I think that I was also at that age where I wanted to belong. So I, through the help of many amazing, amazing people, selfless volunteers who introduced us to the library system, to just life in America, like really mundane things that people don't really think about when you're a part of a culture and you grow up in that culture. Um, so I volunteered at the Beaverton City Library during the summer. And I learned English by watching The Simpsons. And one of the first American movies that I watched was, um, is it Burning Down the House or Bringing Down the House with Queen Latifah and Steve Martin? I forget. But that was one of the first movies that I ever watched. And I obviously didn't understand the racism in it at the time. So um, was it hard for you to get into movies after starting with the greatest movie ever made? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, It was. It was. I think that I grew up on Bollywood movies. So a lot of Afghan culture and Pakistani culture is very influenced by how Bollywood does movies and the colors and the culture and the beauty and the singing and the dancing. So it's it different for sure. And then 
So anyhow, but I'll talk about that later, <laughs> about how my idea of romance, Rachel, as you were talking about, was very influenced by watching a lot of Indian movies. So yeah, so I learned English. Uh, a lot of like beginning of my time in the US is very blurry. I think it's because I didn't speak English. So everything was just like this foggy, like they're very small, like very concrete memories that I have. I have the memories that I felt like it was the walk to school was very long because that didn't require me to understand English to know the the distance at the walk every morning but yeah and then I went to I, I learned enough English to where like I was able to make friends and my sister joined the cross-country team and I joined the cross-country team with her and just adjusting to the culture and then we went uh, about our lives uh, and then I was a senior junior in high school and then we moved to Northern Virginia which was 2006 and my family had bought a house at the time and then we were just Super excited because we're trying to like live this American dream. And we were homeowners going from like these incredibly like poor situations living in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And then coming here when we're homeowners and we were all working, all of my siblings were working and we lost the house and the market crash. So um, it was incredibly hard for all of us to, to see our dreams kind of shatter in front of our eyes. Um, I'm as, so sorry. Yeah. thank you thank you but it happened to like so many people and so many lower income people so many like marginalized groups that are you know is impactful and then uh this whole time i had no idea what politics was what anything was all i wanted to like do was just like i'm gonna work and then we're gonna have money and then we're gonna buy another house or um just have like not be in this um uh, situation where like we're poor or are, are hurting for money <laughs> So yeah, right? <laughs> Big dreams. You started out doing cross country and then you got the real cross country challenge, which is Oregon to Virginia. That's incredible. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that um, East Coast is definitely fast paced. I think it's um, more elitist. I think that East Coast, in my opinion, is more elitist. People are into, uh, people are like more openly anti-poor here. <laughs> Whereas I feel like, um, so this all comes from the fact that I went back to Oregon to do AmeriCorps. So that's where I got more. I think that once you develop a critical eye, it's easier to spot certain nuances that you feel about two different cultures from coast to coast. And I think that I lived mostly in the, like the Portland, Portland metro area. And my impression of Oregon was like rich, not rich, like middle to upper middle class. White kids would come into Portland, pretend to be poor because they like were quote unquote woke. Whereas here, people like go out of their way to be like, I'm not poor. <laughs> like I'm these designer things that I wear, this car I drive, it's just like expensive. Yeah, it's a sickness. It really is just to the core of our entire society. Yeah, right. But yeah, so I I moved here. I, I moved to Northern Virginia and then I graduated high school. But um, I think one of the my greatest accomplishment was that I took two AP classes in high school, uh, my senior year, because like, so I felt like because I came to the US like four years before and I didn't speak any English and I was like hanging out with these kids who were like taking AP classes. So I was like very proud of myself and I was gonna, I was a high achieving student because I'm a nerd and I really liked school, but then didn't really get a ton of like talk about college. I knew that I wanted to go to college. I just didn't know how to go to college. So because we were working class, we all had to work. My family, when we first moved here, we were on food stamps and Medicaid and all that. 
And then when we uh, moved here, we had like, there's only a certain amount of time that you get on uh, social services. And then after that, we were like off it because a lot of us were adults and we could work and stuff. So I just continued in the workforce. I worked at Wendy's and then at Target. Um, And then I became a pharmacy technician at Target. And one of my friends from high school had returned for spring break. And then like very mundanely, she was like, I'm back, blah, blah, blah. And um, she left, picked up her prescription and left. And I turned to the pharmacist and I said, well, I wish I could go to school. And then she was, her name's Audrey. She's amazing. And she said, you can. I was like, I don't know how to go to school. And she's like, well, this is how you applied. This is how you apply for financial aid. Because my family was still um, low income at the time. So she helped me apply. And this was like in March or April. I think March is when spring break is. And then that September, I was at Northern Virginia Community College. And I started school. I worked full time and went to college. And um, then I was like, you know what? Now that I'm like in school and trying to like learn how to navigate how to go to college, I'm gonna become a journalist. And I'm gonna tell people how horrible war is and how like these people sitting up top making these decisions have no idea how it impacts people and how it impacts women and children when women and children aren't usually at the decision making tables or during war. So and then I went to Virginia Tech and it was like a completely different like ball game. I at the community college I had like two jobs. I went to school full time. I like studied once in a while and it got by. And then I got to tech and I was like, woof, I'm not like made for this. And I think that there's so many systems that were set up that because I'm a first generation college student, it's not made for my success. I think um I had a lot of mental health. I developed mental health issues when I was in school. I was always worried about whether I was going to make rent or not, even though I had a work study and a job. And just by senior year, I recognized that I am not the person who can afford to do a free internship to build my portfolio to be able to get a job in journalism. And my writing skills aren't as strong as a lot of the people who are native English speakers. So a lot of things hit me at the same time. And I was graduating and my roommate had gotten a job. She studied engineering and I was I had no job prospects so I was just like scrambling I talked to a lot of people to see what I could be doing a lot of people recommended that I do um, temp jobs so I did a lot of like really undesirable like office jobs uh, when I graduated college but then I also developed depression and mental health is something that I don't want to generalize to say like the Afghan culture doesn't recognize it but I think that there's this thing about I didn't know how to say that I was going through depression. All I knew was that I was really sad all the time. And I'm generally, I'm like a very outgoing, like happy person. And then recognize kind of like, wow, these, like I have $50,000 in student loan debt and I have no jobs. I left retail to go to college and I was going to come out of the cycle of poverty. I was going to be the person who's going to save my family. And now I'm like, $50,000 in student loan debt and I don't have a job. So I'm back at home with my sister. And then I had to go back to retail. So I went back to Target. I hated it. Uh, Like a lot of corporations, Target is not the greatest. Um, They really do not treat their employees well. I, I I have no problem saying it. I've had a lot of friends that worked at Target over the years and I have heard a just kind of endless stream of horror stories from that particular Mm -hmm. uh, employer so (laughs) 
Right. And I think that what, I mean, anybody who works retails or does service, like serves in the service industry recognizes that these are the people, these jobs are held by lower income people. These jobs are mostly, and I'm generalizing here, obviously there are exceptions to the rule, uh, like single moms, people who have no other choice, people who are going between like three jobs, four jobs at the same time. And I think that there's not a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of, um, I was talking to a friend the other day about how cashiers are required to sign people up for a credit card, 10 cards per an eight hour shift. And if you don't get people to sign up for a credit card, then you get, you know, like a a warning, like a performance warning. And then you get three performance warnings, it goes to like another step of discipline, and then another step, and then you're fired. And most people don't want to sign up for a credit card, because credit card companies are also exploitative, and people recognize that. So they are these like very unattainable standards for people to work in I want to just ask you if this was your experience. I've seen a lot of times these kind of standards sort of get used to create a system of abuse because realistically, your direct managers know that sometimes you just can't make these goals for reasons that are completely outside of your control, even if you were doing everything you could. And so they will sort of like structure this environment where you're always in trouble and you're always kind of on the verge of getting fired. And that allows them to take advantage of you, whether that means something kind of small, like uh, maybe uh, garnishing your wages in some way or um, or like just giving you a shitty, you know, shift or whatever or something much, much worse. Right. You know, such as like uh, like sexual taking advantage of which is happening all the time in these corporate cultures. So, you know, I Mm -hmm. were you. When you were working in these retail environments, were you seeing a lot of that? Because I think it's really common, but I'd like to hear from someone on the other side of the country. (laughs) Yes, I think that there, um, I couldn't speak to the sexual harassment um, part of it, but I do know that there are like, people get like three cent raises, like they'll work for a whole year and you get three cents for a raise. And that is insane. Like if you're a single parent or like in my case, a contributing family member where like your income matters, three cents is nothing. We've been using the same basic numbers for how to dole out uh, wages since like 1970. You know, they haven't updated it at all in the entirety of our lifetimes. It's preposterous. Right. So yeah, I mean, just like, I think that corporations in general are exploitative. And I agree with you that like, it creates this hierarchy of abuse like your direct supervisor knows that these are unattainable but then they also have somebody on their head and then the other person has a even though like when it gets to upper management like the higher your numbers go like you get bonuses and you make money in the hundreds of thousands so at the end of the day the people who get screwed are lower level management and actual workers which is ridiculous but um, that's why i also am running because i want to regulate corporations so they can't fuck people over so um and then i went to target i was still incredibly depressed i was so depressed uh, that i couldn't get out of bed but i was also volunteering at this adult uh, there's a program called adult literacy beacon adult literacy and they teach citizenship classes and english as a um, as a secondary language so i was uh, teaching adult citizenship classes because I, I had to go through the citizenship process so i was like mm, i'm gonna make myself useful and do this so i was doing that and i met this person named rachel and she told me about americorps i'd applied to peace corps and i was like i have the experience I have the lived experiences of like how to work with communities who are like Peace Corps serves, but I got rejected, which I thought was 
ridiculous. Wait, so like I did. What? what was the reason they gave you? Did they give you a reason? What? Nothing. No, they're just like I know, right? I've got I've gotten a more significant rejection for like a dog washing job. Like what the? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't tell you anything. It's crazy. No, and the ridiculous thing is that I worked with someone who was a recruiter for the Peace Corps. So I don't understand what happened, but they rejected me. So I was like, I'm gonna serve, and I want like my college degree to mean something. I want my life to mean something. So I met Rachel, who's like this wonderful person doing AmeriCorps. And she told me about AmeriCorps and she was like, it's just like the Peace Corps, but it's within the United States. So I started looking and I was like, I'm going to go save every low income brown kid who's just like me, who's like smart and then doesn't need to like accrue so much student loan debt. So I took a job in Portland, Oregon, um, because I knew people there from high school and I was familiar. So I moved back in 2015. 2016, I'm sorry. And then I started working at a a college access organization. And then it was, I loved working with students and then kind of like started to realize that actually I single-handedly could probably like tell 200 students that like people are going to try to sell student loan debt and student loans. And these are like the decisions you should make and how the college process works and things like that. But this is like a systematic issue. This is like something that our government needs to have structures in place so students don't have to accrue $50,000 in student loan debt. And I think I'm like averaging nationally. I think it's like about 36000 average for st- people to accrue student loan debt. Um, and then I uh, worked there. So my entire job was to be a digital coach. So I worked with uh, students who were high achieving, low to moderate income. And my job was to help them apply to IVs and private schools because a lot of lower income, lower to middle income people don't think that they can either afford it or they shouldn't, like they don't think to apply to those schools. So I worked with a, a group of students and Uh, What's ridiculous is just like, especially in California, there's per one high school counselor, there's 900 students. That's yeah, that's really unacceptable. Like that, if you are trying to help 900 students, you cannot even remember all of their names, um, much less like their financial situation, their grades, what schools they're interested in, what programs they're interested in, blah, blah. Like these are the kinds of things a counselor needs to know to actually help you get to college. Um, Right. Not just like, yeah, help you fill out a form one time, which is all a counselor is going to be able to do if they've got 900 students. And it's not their fault, but that's that's a complete right. failure of the system. That's that's abhorrent to hear. <laughs> yeah. So um, and I think that if you come from a higher income background where your family can afford to seek resources outside of the school system, I think it, that's how it works for a lot of people. And I think that is when I realized that it's not that the counselors didn't believe in my ability to go to college, just like because there was no pressure from my parents because they uh, like my mom also didn't go to school. So um, my mom grew up in this very small village in Afghanistan and she's illiterate. She's never like she doesn't even know how to read and write in her own language. So like it's how could she have figured out the American system of sending her kid to college? So that and I then started getting involved with a a work group um, that a lot of previous AmeriCorps volunteers have put together called the uh, Social Justice and Equity Work Group. And that is when like kind of like my political awakening happened. I think that a lot of people were really impacted by Trump being elected. But I think that because I was so disconnected from the electoral politics, 
that I didn't know, like the impact that Trump has in this country and the horrendous things that he continues to do. And I started running a divestment effort within the organization from Wells Fargo. So mostly to no one's surprise, the communities that we served were lower income and communities of color. And we, but we were taking donation money like uh, from Wells Fargo, which is like notoriously known for discriminating against lower income and black and brown people. So we did a lot of research and we um, got um, some of the board members and some of the uh, national leaders to come out and speak with us about how we should divest from this really horrible company if we're trying to. But then um, I met like so many incredible people and then started going to protests, started getting educated about how electoral systems impact our lives so closely. So I was like, oh, my gosh, Trump is horrible, but like we've for the most part, had pretty bad presidents. Um, right. And then... Yeah, we really have not yet had a president that is not a war criminal. Right. Or at least it's been it's been far too long to remember such a thing. If right. perhaps one ever existed, which is highly questionable at best, it's just a mess. It's a mess. Yeah. Um, and then, so I started, like, canvassing. I started getting, like, involved in, in terms of, like, local politics and stuff like that. And then when my term of service was over, I moved back because my family's here and to Northern Virginia. And same same process. I moved back. I could not. I moved back in September and I couldn't find a job until March of 2019. So almost, like, six, seven months. Even within that process, uh, so my current job that I have, I applied to like 74 places because I've cover letters, um, despite the fact that I hate writing cover letters. I have 74 cover letters. And out of the 74 cover letters, four got back to me. Three of them, I had changed my name to Zoe, and those all got back to me. And then one company got back to me with the name Zainab. Oh, that those sort of things just hurt to hear. <laughs> right? I hate that that's true. I hate yeah. that that works. Yeah. And then I got hired to my my current job that I have at Zoe. And then I had to be like, actually, I go by Zena, but like I have to change my name because nobody's getting back to me. Right. Like, because people are fucking racist, actually. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that so much of our like racism is so implicit. And I think that what happens often is just like people are scared because they don't know how to say my name. It's like, just fucking ask me. Like, say it wrong and I'll correct you. Like, it's fine. <laughs> Or Google it. It's like very common in the Muslim community. And yeah, so I, I got the job and I just like became more and more involved in politics. I canvassed uh, the last two election cycles when I moved back. I canvassed uh, in the area for a congressional candidate and then actually got a job as a canvasser um, through a immigrant and rights organization and canvassed for progressive candidates within the area for local and state um, level and just kind of made me realize that there are not a lot of progressive people. There are a lot of people who don't recognize a lot of the issues that community members feel. So I was mostly canvassing in a lot of like immigrant communities, lower income communities who tend to be like communities of color and found out that there's so many fucking people in this district who like as if my life was their life. Like I'm living home because like I went to college, I have a college degree, but no job. Or like I'm working three jobs and I still can't afford to live here. So there's like 10 of us living in this house and stuff like that. And just like blew my mind because District 11 is a fairly wealthy district. And then I started doing more research and the income gap and the wealth gap is just so parallel to the rest of the country based on race. Like Asian Americans make 
the closest to white people and they're still $20,000 less within this district, like make $20,000 less than their white counterparts. And then Latinx families make the lowest and then black families make like forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 lower. And I was just like blown by this. Like where we live in a fairly, Rachel, you said you've lived in Arlington. This area is pretty wealthy. Right. Yeah. It's gratuitously wealthy, mostly. Right. So, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to check to see what my representative was doing. And then I started doing research and he just, just like so status quo, like so bland in, in terms of like, he doesn't believe in Medicare for all. He is like, doesn't believe in free public colleges and universities. And he's like, so invested in the a military industrial complex like like he takes campaign donations from ICE and from ICE contractors and then like a lot of immigrant justice organizations have confronted him about it but he like doesn't care he like I we were just like looking at open secrets and last campaign donation he took from this ICE contractor was like March 31st that's so fucking gross like <laughs> I just how can you just accept blood money right you know? so I was like so much of my life has been shaped by the fact that some old white men have sat at a table together, made decisions about the rest of the world. And like my entire family's life like was upended and we, and I'm like, I'm grateful to be here and I'm like grateful to be an American. I feel like I'm gonna, side note, like I'm, I feel like I always have to prove my Americanness because I'm brown, but, um, but I love this country and I think it's given me everything that I am and er like it's made me recognize like given me everything that I have um but I think that we also have to take responsibility for the shit that we do around the world and I think that these wars is unnecessary and it impacts people like it's not the leaders of Taliban who are impacted by these wars it's poor people it's children it's women who lose it's more civilians have died in Iraq and Afghanistan than any other group so it's these people who are just trying to fucking live their lives who are impacted by these wars so in so much of Northern Virginia is like military contracting. And, and I think that we need to recognize that and we need a shift. We need to stop bombing countries for no fucking reason. So yeah, this is my story. And then I decide I'm going to run. And then so many people were like, he's been in office for 12 years or like he's started being involved in politics longer than you've been alive, which I'm like, that doesn't say shit. Like you can be involved in something and still be wrong. It's sort of the opposite of a qualification in my book at this point, because like, you know, if he's been in office for 12 years, what has he done? That's right. not that's that's not a good thing. You know, we shouldn't be able to point to so many people and say, oh, well, they've been in office for all this time. And then we can't actually point to anything significant that they've done. Right. Or if we can point to something significant that they've done, it's horrible. Like they allowed some coal company to dump stuff in a river. Or, you know, it's if they have some some big thing that they're known for, it's something bad. Um, I do want to ask you something about the progressive politics in general, because you mentioned that there's sort of this disconnect between the way people are living and, and like what they need and sort of the way people see the state of politics. Right. Um, but that is not just an external disconnect where it's simply the wealthy looking down on the poor. It's also something that is a internal disconnect that a lot of people can't bridge the gap between their own needs and a political solution. Right. Um, I, I would like to hear your maybe some of your opinions about why you think that is and what you think can be best done about it. I think that, yes, I think we as Americans sell people on this idea of like hard work. And I think that 
nobody works harder than poor people. <laughs> like people work really hard and still aren't able to even survive. I think a lot of people are living in poverty and cycles of poverty. And I think the government and the the way things are in terms of our like legislature, it's working for enough people to where it's not a problem. I think um, so people are giving just enough to not hold uh, elected officials accountable, but it's just not enough. I think that scarcity is not, we don't have a scarcity problem. I think Elhan Omar says this. We don't have a scarcity problem. We have a greed problem. I think when our elected representatives work for the wealthy and for the people who can make campaign donations, then we're not serving people equitably, right? And I think that um, I became a U.S. citizen in 2008. And the first time anybody canvassed my house was 2019, November. So we are in uh, my house about six adults who are of voting age. Because there's such a lack of education around electoral politics in our school system, in our society, that a lot of people who should be part of the electoral process aren't. So I think that my solution to it is that we need to expand the electorate. I think that we can start out by educating people and promoting mail-in ballots so people can see, people can receive that they have options and these are their options. I think that politics is complex. But people can understand pretty complex things. So just outreach more in these communities. The entire like Democratic Party runs on the back of black and brown people with black and brown voters who go out and vote. But then politicians forget about those communities and don't address the issues of inequities that exist between white America and black and brown America. Um, so I think that just having outreach, having like town halls and reaching out from like local politics, I think it's more common for local politics to do outreach in the community than it is for federal politics. But I think that just working with communities, which is part of like central of central part of my campaign is to work collaboratively with people who already have these relationships with community members to get their opinions, to get what matters to them, what issues they're facing. And I think that the, the reason why there's a disconnect is this twofold thing is just like one people People think that if they work hard enough, the system will work for them. And then second, there's not an effort from politicians and representatives and the electoral system people in charge to do outreach in a lot of communities to actually figure out why people feel the inequities that exist. Um, So I think that a lot of, for example, like student loan debt, there has been enough conversation about it that a lot of people do recognize a lot of like politicians, a lot of organizations are recognizing that this is an issue. And I think that it's coming to the mainstream. And it's not rich people who are in student, like who are accruing student loan debt. It's people like me. Right. So listen, what are some of the things? We talk about national issues all the time. We're a big time show. <laughs> I was wondering, what are some of the local issues that apply to your district that when we talk about things going on in Georgia or some other state, might not apply. But there are things that when they come up, they're very unique to your district. I think that one of the biggest issues in Northern Virginia is traffic, just like the inf- infrastructure, the lack of public transit. <laughs> Let me tell you, I said to pick something that does not apply in the state of Georgia. <laughs> we have traffic problems in Georgia just coming out the ass. And we also have uh, an activist from Los Angeles who's coming on later tonight. And she actually has a show that's literally just about traffic issues. There might be some similarities between Northern Virginia and Atlanta because they're both you know, emerging metropolitan areas. They're both getting bigger by the year. And 
Yeah, how is that commute and how is the drive and what kind of toll is that taking on people? So, um, and I think Rachel can attest to this, is just like this, people are so limited in terms of like transportation. There's not an adequate system that runs to get people to, a lot of the job uh, market is focused uh, around Washington, D.C. And people who live in the suburbs, if you don't have a car, you don't have access to jobs. So I think that there's this intersectionality of issues that we have. The people, a lot of the jobs are concentrated in an area, but you can only access public transit from a, a certain distance. If you live outside of that, that certain distance, then you don't have access. And then our roads are falling apart. So I think that that's where like the Green New Deal comes in. It's just like we need a reformation in in this area. And we have the opportunity to do so. We can save our planet while we're at it or like save the people because planet is going to be fine. It's us who's going to die. So um, I think that traffic is something that's really, I like you said, it's not unique. I thought it was very unique, but yeah, <laughs> I guess not. Well, what is the public transportation situation? What is it like now? And what are some of the barriers that are keeping y'all from improving things up there? Uh, Rachel, you wanted to say something? Um, I was going to sort of chime in and just say that, yeah, it's kind of the same issue we have in Atlanta. You know, we have no public transit to speak of. uh, And even when you live inside the city of Atlanta, you can get shut out from a lot of jobs because you just don't have Mm -hmm. adequate transportation at all. It's a huge deal. It's, It's a huge issue for equality. Right. Absolutely. Um, So the public transit situation is that there's a train system that called Metro that goes into Washington, D.C., but you can only access it from certain points in the city. For example, uh, my sister lives in a town called Bristow. It's about 45 minutes for her to get to the metro, which is another 45 minutes into DC. So if you are a person who lives in Bristow who needs to have a job, you are spending three to four hours a day easily in traffic. And then on top of that, there's this um, system called Easy Pass where they charge you depending on the uh, flow of traffic. If traffic is really heavy, in order for them to like prevent people from driving, they charge you up to $50 to, to go through. Um, you can get, if you do like carpool and then sign up with a special sort of discount, you can get, get through for free. But otherwise, you have to pay $50 if you're a person who is a single driver. But I take the metro because I intentionally moved really close to the metro um, because I work inside Washington, D.C. I pay $5.95 per trip. So that's $10 a day. And if you're a lower income person, first of all, housing prices are insanely uh, high. So if you could afford to live close to the metro, you still have to spend about $11 on commute. And then, um, so like there's these inequities that exist that if you're a lower income person, you're, there's cost barrier. There are no uh, low income uh, discounts for you. For example, when I lived in Portland, if you make under a certain amount of money, first of all, Portland's uh, trans- public transit system is amazing. And then, um, but if you are under, a, a live under a, a certain income bracket, you get discounted rates. And then you pay, like, instead of $5, you pay $2.50. How can we live in this rich ass area and not have a discount program for people who are lower income? And then there's this disconnect between people who are like incredibly wealthy, they think poor people don't exist. And so there, those programs don't exist. And then also, I think it's because there's such a lack of representation from working class people at the table to be like, look, fuckers, there are people 
who cannot get jobs because they cannot afford to go back and forth between the city. So that's that. And uh, I think that there needs to be like just more public transit. They started a, a bus um, system that's getting um, going from where my sister lives to into the city. But same thing with traffic. There are a lot of people driving. There was some sort of proposal to expand the, the metro line. And we were supposed to get a metro into Dallas Airport in 2010. Ten years later, it hasn't happened. I think that there are a lot of issues uh, with the management of the metro. And then there's some funding issues and things like that. So I think that there needs to be a shift in addressing like climate racism while trying to fix the infrastructure to ba- uh, combat some of the inequities that exist in terms of like accessibility, just plain and simple. Rachel, what do you think? Like about whether people should have public transportation. I, mean, I still think that that's good and important. Thanks. Idea. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I that you all agree with me. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like these kinds of things shouldn't be controversial. You know, uh, they shouldn't, right. they, sh- they should be no brainers, right? This, this is the kind of thing where, yeah. you know, if you want to have a well-functioning society, right? If you want not just the best for individual people, but for everybody, providing these kinds of resources to people benefits everyone. But, you know, we have this weird, and I think you alluded to this uh, earlier, sort of ferociously individualist approach to everything, you know, and it's like literally killing the planet and the entire country. And we're probably going to have a fucking civil war over it. And it's like over things like whether people should be able to catch a bus and actually get to work on time. Exactly. And I think that it's just like incredibly sad because there's this cycle, right? I think that a lot of people aren't, a lot of working class people aren't in, involved in the political process because people have lives and they're so, so busy surviving that they don't have this extra time to participate in the political process. But then our issues don't get to the table because we're not there. And then like people at the table don't think it's an issue because they never have to face it. And it's just this like vicious cycle that when somebody like me who dares to come to the table, I I get a lot of from the local committees, like the Democratic committees, like who is not being represented? And I'm just like, have you ever walked outside of this like circle of people that you hang out with or like the mansion that is next to yours? Like, do you talk to other people outside of that? Like, do you ever sit down and talk to the grocery clerk and ask them where they come from? Why are they working the the job that they're working? And like, there's this disconnect between people who are at the table and people who don't have the opportunity to be at the table. So it's it's sad, but I see a shift. I'm hopeful. I am too, honestly. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else. You mentioned working with people to help them uh, legally immigrate to the United States. And I wanted to ask you if you could to sort of paint a picture of like what that process is like and why it might sort of present barriers for people in certain situations or what some of the tripping hazards are along the way, you know, that people sort of get caught up in and then they they find it harder and harder to uh, finish the legal process. Because I think there are a lot of pitfalls that people, you know, wouldn't necessarily think of um, our immigration system as trying to play gotcha games but it totally does. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, think that, uh, I think that, you know, if people kind of understood um, the way that these pitfalls are sort of entrapping these people, um, that they might relate a little better to the concept of why someone might be here illegally. 
I think that so I'm gonna exclusively speak about my experience of having lived uh, having lived as an undocumented person in a different country, but I think the experiences are very parallel. Um, so with my family, so we I belong to two minority com- communities in Afghanistan. So I'm Hazara, uh, which is like where, uh, depending on what history you read, we're either the native people to Afghanistan or we're descended as a descendant of Genghis Khan. So we look Asian to what white people think Asians look like. So, uh, and then we're also Shiite Muslim. So the two things, so there's systemic oppression of Hazara people within the Afghan uh, societal system, uh, structure. So we typically tend to be people who are um, out in the villages with very little access to like any modern technologies or education and things like that. So, but what, what happened is when the Taliban came, they were, um, and a lot of the other groups also like, uh, specifically, so a lot of the the majority of Afghanistan is Sunni Muslim, and they look different. They look more have like Arab features. So what happens is like with the Taliban, they're actively seeking Shiite Muslims because the Taliban don't think that Shiite Muslims are real Muslims, and then we're targets because we look different. So it's easy. We're like easy, easily spotable. These are Shiite Muslims, and we know that because they look different. Um. So. My family was forced to flee Afghanistan. And then because the Afghan government was still a running government, the Pakistani government recognized the Afghan government as a, as a legitimate government. So we basically crossed the border, illegally came into Pakistan, and then the Pakistani government doesn't allow for you to hold jobs. But you also, my family couldn't go back because we'd be murdered. Um, so I think that that is one of the reasons why nobody, and I think when I think of it in terms of the American, uh, like people, uh, undocumented people who are trying to cross the border from like the South is because nobody's trying to risk their lives to come to America because they felt like it. We also, we don't treat undocumented people all that well for them to, to risk their lives to come here to be like, oh, um, we're racist against them. We like they are. Exploited. I mean, we literally have like actual concentration camps right now. Like I cannot imagine anybody right. would move here because they think they're going to be treated well. Right. And then rich people don't have to do it because they can just buy a house and move. Right. So these are the people who are in such desperate need to like and fear for their lives that they have to come here or like their government. Uh, doesn't have like or the j- opportunities of making a living is so so bleak that they have to come here and face racism face like potentially go into a concentration camp with their children to survive i do think it's hard to convince people of other people's humanity so i think that people who hold a piece of paper over other people to accept your humanity and accept your need to survive i have nothing to say to you to convince you otherwise but yeah, so I, I, th- that's just one of uh, some of my experiences. And then when it comes to like my experience of coming to the U.S. as a refugee, I think that there's this fear of the otherness of Muslim people and the otherness of people who come to the U.S. as, as undocumented, I think. So what happened, my mom applied to the United Nations High Commissions for Refugees for help, like any sort of help. And then they decide whether they want to monetarily help you in that country where you're taking, uh, where you're living, or they can, you can go to a Western country. So either Europe or um, the United States. And then our whole process took uh, three years. What they do is they come in, they interview you, kind of like what you said, Kennedy, about how they always try to play this like gotcha moment. So they interview you, they interview your neighbors, they interview so many people who have ever like, 
want evidence of you having had interacted with these people. So the process takes about three years because they are just doing all the background checks that they can get on you. So they can, like, the goal is to to verify, to make sure that you're safe to come here. Then, then like, that's what it took for my family. And then you go through a medical examination. So they check you for any and every disease that they feel like it's communicable or things that you shouldn't be able to bring um, to the United States. So once you pass through all of that, then they start the process to find like charities and organizations who would help resettle families. And then that's how we were placed in Beaverton, Oregon. With a process that convoluted, it almost sounds like the goal is to let just enough people through that we could be like, oh, yeah, see, we're doing we're doing it. Uh, like, right. oh my gosh, three years of just, you know, just ridiculous. I can't even imagine. It's just it's absurd that, you know, somebody who's who's right. waiting for serious like need of help, you know, would be waiting right. that long. A person that's in danger over any three year period. Uh, it's probably not going to be the same person at the end of those three years. Right, right. Um, and I think that they're just like the the process takes a really long time and then they do the surprise visits. So it's not like you, you could like fake it. <laughs> like you could, you know, like people who can afford to set up whatever fake thing don't need to come and pretend. So they do surprise visits. So a lot of times like uh, you'd be like in the middle of the night and they just come knock on your door to make sure you're sleeping where you're sleeping. So it's the process is very thorough. And so I just don't understand. I think that a lot of people have this idea of and for, for good reasons, I think we consume a lot of media that's very anti-immigrant and anti-other, just othering of people. So so we don't have to help them to justify our xenophobia and our racism uh, uh, against immigrants and people who don't look uh, like a lot of white America. So yeah, So, but the process is thorough. I think I couldn't make a stronger case than to like, why would somebody come here and face all this like racism and potentially being caged at the border and, and risk their lives to, because they they had like the luxury to do so. Well, I think that the people who are likely to believe that are the same people who are likely to believe that there is some sort of exceptional quality to the United States that makes it better than anywhere else. You know, it's the same indoctrination and sort of programming on both sides of that equation. And I would guess that it's that same sort of unconscious bias that would get people to, you know, be more critical of candidates who don't look like them or who aren't the same gender as them. And I wanted to sort of ask you, um, you know, we talked about this during the pre-interview and it led to some really interesting places. So I kind of wanted to bring it back. Would you like to sort of share how that aspect of your identity and your experience has uniquely interacted with your behavior as a candidate and, you know, the sort of things that you've been able to like get away with, for example. Right. Um, just like my, my immigrant identity. I'm um, well, so like, uh, I didn't when quite we were understand. talking about this in the pre-interview, we were sort of talking about like being a woman of color. And I was talking about you know, things you can get right. away with, like saying and doing, right. right. Um, I recently, right. for example, put up a guillotine in front of, you know, the state, uh, Capitol building. Right. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. I did that because it's like, yeah, I'm a pretty white lady. The cops won't literally kill me. <laughs> but, you know, right. but it's like one of the things, you know, um, and I know that when we were talking about that in the pre-interview, it was just such a good conversation. So I wanted to try and warn it back in somehow. Right. Um, I think that I agree. I, I mean, we live in a 
like patriarchal white supremacist society, right? So I think that I don't have a lot of the luxuries that a white male candidate would have. I think I try to be a, a thoughtful person and try to understand that a lot of, I grew up in this patriarchal uh, white supremacist society and I have blind spots to a lot of the, a lot of the norms a lot of the things that are wrong, but are, are, are the norms. So I try to be very thoughtful. And I think that it's hard for people to imagine that a, like, because I'm younger, because I'm a woman of color, that I, I need to prove a lot of things that, that other people don't. So for example, a lot of people ask qualifications wise, like what makes you qualified? And I think that I fucking learned English at 14 and I have a fucking college degree in the same language that you grew up speaking. So I think that it, I could write, I could learn how to write legislation. I think that what makes <laughs> like it. it important. This is good. No, I like that. <laughs> so like, it, I think that it's the lived experiences, it's the nuances that I can bring to the table that would make me a good legislator. That's important. It's not that whether the fact that I can follow Robert's rule or not, because that's something that I can learn on the job. But I, I think that nobody would ask a white man about what qualifies them to run for office. And I think that a lot of things get brought up. I was doing a Reddit AMA and people have so many ways to tell me that I have no right to want big structural changes that because this is the country that I migrated. And somehow because I'm a brown woman, it disqualifies me for wanting a better future. Like I am an American now, like whether you like it or not, and I'm going to live here for the next hundreds of generations to come so i have just as much a right to want big structural changes than than a white man but yeah i i mean i i get i'm very cognizant of the fact that uh, a lot of people will bring out like question whether my patriotism towards america because i'm muslim because i'm brown uh, and because i'm an immigrant that i don't think uh, a lot of other candidates would ever have to answer um, let's talk about how people can join your campaign. What do people need to do in order to get plugged in or follow you more closely? Uh, sure. I'm, uh, I run my own Twitter. So I'm on Twitter, uh, Zainab Musini. And then we have a website. It's ZainabMusini.com. We're also on Facebook. All, all the links are on my website, actually. We are 100% grassroots. So we only take donations from uh, individuals because I want to be accountable to people and not corporations. I took a pledge that I won't take any corporate PAC money. We're completely volunteer run. People who are part of our campaign are people who actually believe in these changes and the message that I'm pursuing. So a lot of people believe in immigrant justice and educational equity and racial justice and equity. And so those are the people who are invested because they want to be here. My opponent has $3 million and has spent about $750,000 already. And my entire campaign has raised about $11,000. And we are doing a pretty good damn job. Which is excellent to hear. Um, listen, we've done. I mean, time really flies when you're having fun. This is at least fun for me. I don't know how everybody else feels. I've never had fun in my entire life. Not missing well, much. Yes, we don't expect you to start now, but um, you know, if you if you are a person you're listening right now, you you're capable of having fun, unlike Rachel. Then uh, hopefully this was fun for you. <laughs> it was absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Even though it's like all me talking and y'all having to That's listen to me. Here. <laughs> but I, we, I literally <laughs> our our goal is to just kind of line wind people up and let them rip 
and not to not to <laughs> run you. you over too much. I mean, you had a lot to say. You have a very interesting story to tell and a, a lot of very well grounded, in my opinion, political ideas. So there wasn't much to add. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, sometimes sometimes our job is just about amplifying and you're <laughs> I very much would like to amplify. So thank you so much. I hope to come back and actually have um a politician talk, talk more de- into detail about my policies and stuff like that. But I've, uh, I'm 31, but I've lived a 60 year life. So you really have, you've done a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I would love to have you back. I think you're awesome and very fun to talk thank to. Thank you so much. Uh, Likewise. Thank yes, you so much. Uh, thank you so much to Zainab Mosini for joining us today and everybody. Those links will be in the show description as always you got to go check it out follow her on twitter do all the good stuff um and as for us if you don't follow our show on twitter it's at nsf wonks and if you would like to do something to get a little more involved with our show because you love the content we make you know this show is 100 percent independent unbought media and uh everything that we can get in terms of help is massive for us and if you go to patreon.com slash not safe you can chip in a few bucks over there and it makes all the difference in the world in terms of the journalism that we're able to do the content that we're able to provide uh, the quality of jokes that we're able to crack you know maybe one day we'll hire a joke writer and we'll actually be funny wouldn't you like that uh (laughs) but uh until then we appreciate you listening as always This has been just a delightful episode. Uh, I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Rachel Kahn. I'm Brandon Buchanan. And once again, our guest was uh, Zainab Mosini. Zainab, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful being here, talking to you all. I hope to be back. And we will look forward to having you on again. And we will look forward to having all of you wonderful listeners listen with us again as we go through another journey soon. And until then, we'll see you later.